0: The experimenting that he was doing, he even actually did some experimenting with backwards music mm. that would come in handy later. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but, but did whatever he wanted.
1: Welcome to 1961. Beatle 60 is an independent, unofficial study group. We're not experts. We're like diligent students. We follow their experiences in real time. Well I'm a I'm blue as machine. Hello, listeners. Today we're offering a brief look at what George Martin was up to in 1961. I'm here with my co-host. Actually, we're not together. We're 7,000 miles apart, but by modern technology. I'm with barmy old codger, who's called Andy, if you know him. And uh, I'm known in social media as rent's Fur, but my friends call me Larry. How's it
0: going, Andy? Uh, it's good. How are you, Larry? Uh, you're like so far away. I'm so far away. You're, you're there in Osaka and I'm in Nashville. So (laughs) yeah, just, just so they know. Yeah. Yeah. There you go.
1: So, uh, George Martin and Parlophone, we we tend to think of Parlophone as the real Beatles label for their canonical releases and Capitol as just one among many international labels carrying EMI's uh, releases locally. and other EMI divisions were all the result of past mergers and acquisitions, each one, I guess, with different internal agreements, prerogatives, and I suppose corporate cultures almost surely. I don't know any of this, but I'm just guessing. Capital, Columbia, Parlophone, and other labels were under the EMI umbrella as very separate divisions long before the Beatles signed with them, as the young head of Parlophone, I heard from you and from some reading somewhere that uh, Martin was very conscious of what other divisions were up to both domestically in the UK and especially in Los Angeles. You've been digging into the topic lately. Um, I know that this will be on your blog eventually, Could you um, share briefly some of what uh, you found out about the transatlantic relationship between divisions, especially George Martin's perspective on it all? Divisions were like frenemies, supposedly colleagues, but sometimes uncooperative and competitive, going back how far, the 1950s?
0: Yeah, EMI bought capital. Uh, in the U.S. in 1955 to try to promote British music more. But one of the big reasons was manufacturing because there were manufacturing plants in the U.S. that Capital had. Now, a lot of the people at Capital were upset, which happens all the time when one company buys another company. This other company is actually in a different country. Mm. They thought that U.K. music wouldn't sell. Mm. To an extent, they were right. Now, they caused some of it themselves, but they were right in the sense that U.K. artists really didn't succeed in the U.S. U.S., even Cliff Richard, who had 39 top 10 hits in the U.K. in the 50s and 60s. Mm. Uh, Well, he reached number 30 once in the U.S. during that time.
1: It's really, it's hard to explain, isn't it? Because British artists, of course, after the Beatles did really well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but part of it was, I think, their own fault, because, you know, part of the agreement when EMI bought Capital was that Capital retained the first turndown option on UK records, and they used it pretty much constantly. In 1958, for example, Capital only released 16 out of 500 EMI singles in the UK. By 1962, that number was down to 8. Hmm. Dave Dexter, who was Capital's Director of International Repertoire. <laughs> said that he was told by the capital sales team that he, even only releasing 16 or down to eight singles, uh, was releasing, quote, too many damned British dogs.
1: So uh, it's really some some kind of attitude
0: there, though, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's, you think it's warranted or is
1: it, what was it?
0: I don't, I, it's hard for me to say if it, like it being warranted it certainly doesn't seem now, like, like it is now. I mean, it's kind of hard to put yourself in that situation at, of the time, but, you know, So they continued on with kind of being difficult to deal with because Mm. when they did take something, they didn't promote it. One example of that is Parlophone's Beyond the Fringe album, Beyond the Fringe being the the comedy group that included uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Mm. Um, And... They didn't promote it at all in the U.S. There's a quote from George Martin in Kenneth Womack's book, Maximum Volume, which is a a biography of George Martin. And George Martin said, this is a serious indictment of Capitol's ability to promote albums of British artists. I would not recommend Capitol Records to any impresario who was thinking of launching a future British show in the States. You know, so, very clearly unhappy about this situation. Mm. The, the only positive, maybe... That came from it was that after being turned down, EMI then had the right to shop the songs or albums around to other U.S. labels. And so they ended up building relationships with United Artists, with Verve, um, and VJ, among others. Uh, you know that Cliff Richard number 30 song that I mentioned? Yeah. Uh, that song was Living Doll. You know, Living Doll pretty big hit in the UK, Mm. right? But it had fallen victim of the first turn down option, and it ended up being released in the US by ABC Paramount. This habit of turning down British music, that was going to affect the Beatles quite a bit, but we're going to be talking more about that in the future. We shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves here. Another part of the difference in the US and the UK was the equipment. George Martin actually made a trip to California in 1957 ended up seeing a recording session of Frank Sinatra. Actually, he was impressed by that. But one of his first impressions was that Capitol's recording equipment itself was incredible. And by comparison, EMI was in the Dark Ages. Mm. Um, you know, Martin recommended those upgrades to EMI, and they did accept that idea. Uh, they were kind of slow to get to it, but at least he had that going for
1: him. Mm. I wonder um, if... The attitude, if they just sort of underestimated American consumers of both comedy and music, you know, because even public television was unsure how Monty Python would do at first, but then it really took off eventually, you know, you know, a decade later. Yeah, it,
0: it was, in a sense, that's very similar to the Beatles in a sense, right? Monty Python and comedy, the Beatles and, and music, how suddenly in America, to this day, they're huge.
1: I think maybe Capital just was, was nearsighted or something.
0: Yeah. What's
1: the word I'm looking for?
0: (laughs) That's probably a good one. I guess so, yeah.
1: Wasn't Parlophone associated with sort of novelty and comic hits? Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing I noticed when compiling new singles for our Facebook group that were 60 years ago entering the UK and US charts in 1960, 1961, I noticed how really good pop hits were coming from America. You know, you had Ray Charles and Patsy Cline and, you know, just really good stuff. Elvis, you know? And that the British radio seemed to range from stodgy to quirky to quaint. You know, you had Anthony Newley was like the best thing they could come up with, you know, (laughs) or Cliff Richard. But the powerful pop hits were fewer and farther between. I guess it's no wonder that young Brits found the goons to have been a breath of fresh air and otherwise were keen on American imports for music, for rock, blues, jazz, country, gospel. And then the Goffin King stuff and the girl groups. Uh, But I I heard from you that Martin was almost obsessed with the idea of producing a great pop act. He was frustrated, basically, right?
0: Yeah, well, you know, he was the head of Parlophone starting in 1955 when he was 29 years old. Parlophone had been the lowest rung on the EMI ladder, but Martin made great improvements to it, and it was mainly with comedy. Both LPs and singles by Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, Beyond the Fringe, uh, Bernard Cribbins, who I have to mention because he ultimately went on to play Wilfred Mott in Doctor Who, and ding, I've got my Doctor Who reference for the week. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... George Martin definitely wanted a pop star. He had been thinking about it from the very beginning. There is another George Martin quote from the Kenneth Womack biography where Martin says, The comedy records had been fine and had begun to put Parlophone on the map, but I was looking with something close to desperation for an act from the pop world. I was frankly jealous of the seemingly easy success other people were having with such acts, in particular Nori Paramore, my opposite number on Columbia, whose artist Cliff Richard was on an apparently automatic ride to stardom. Nori and Cliff, were so successful that they could have taken God Save the Queen to the top of the charts. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of talk about his kind of jealousy of Nori Paramore <laughs> and Cliff Richard. He did have some little success, George Martin did, with uh, uh, Matt Monroe, for example, who was kind of a Frank Sinatra-style singer. Mm. His first two singles in 1960 were both in the top five on the UK charts, but nothing close to what Cliff Richard was doing. The first George Martin produced number one song was You're Driving Me Crazy, by the Temperance Seven, but that was pretty much straight 1920s-style jazz. Mm. Um, It was a little little quirky, but it was still... it was jazz. Uh, Still, no pop stars.
1: Yeah, if only a good pop act could come his way. Geez, he could really do something. If only.
0: So, yeah, I noticed
1: you're talking. He he describes the head of the other divisions, which are labels also, as his opposite number. So they're colleagues, but they're rivals at the same time.
0: Right, yeah, especially Nori because of
1: Cliff. (laughs) (laughs) Nori's success really got in his craw. Is that a phrase? I think so. Yeah, yeah. It did that. (laughs) <laughs> sure, he wanted to sign a great pop actor, performer, produce them, and probably even compose for them to get royalties. I, I guess, I'm i guessing, is that right?
0: Yeah, that was something else that he kind of picked up from Nori Paramore. He actually almost at one point turned in Nori Paramore for making too much money by using fake names to help write things. But, but George Martin started doing that too eventually, because Parlophone, well, EMI, wouldn't pay royalties to the producers like the Americans. Americans (laughs) did, and so that was also another bone of contention for George Martin the whole time. That Mm. you know, up to into the '60s.
1: Mm. I think in in you know, if we were professors in organization studies, this would be like a a case study in corporate culture, sort of that kind of thing, right? Organization men. Um, So uh, he wouldn't get that pop act, of course, until the Beatles uh, were sort of dropped on him uh, against his will. Uh, in late 1962, but we're not there yet. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Foreshadowing. We're not there yet. I, I'm, yeah, I'm looking at my crystal ball here. <laughs> yeah. Listeners might hear this and think that Martin lacked an outlet for his creativity. Uh, I I haven't heard his bold experimental work. We all know that in the future, he'd become associated with brilliant, fresh techniques in the studio. So uh, where did his creative skills come from? How far back?
0: Yeah, George Martin had been trying... All sorts of different things uh, from the very beginning. By 1956, only a year after he took over Parlophone, he was recording not only the comedy, but children's music, skiffle. You know that he actually uh, produced a version of Maggie May by the Vipers. Uh, yeah. And all sorts of things. My favorite of his early ideas was this idea of the do-it-yourself disc, mm. which you could kind of say was a precursor to karaoke. Um, mm. He would take discs of current songs um, and they'd be released without the vocals, packaged with a lyric sheet uh, so that you could sing them yourself. So even outside of technical things, he was already full of ideas. He was just doing whatever he wanted. In fact, that his success, mainly with the comedy, gave him the ability really to do whatever he wanted at Parlophone because EMI was so happy with how he was building up the label and how much money they were bringing in and all of that. So it was like kind of just you go do what you do.
1: (laughs) So he, he, he wasn't in like a really sorry state. He just he was just jealous of his colleagues, right?
0: Yeah. Right. I mean, he had a lot going for him in the sense that, yeah, he was successful. It wasn't like he was floundering, you know, even if it wasn't what he wanted to be doing. And he had that freedom. And so those were things to be very happy about. There was just that one little thing that stuck in his craw, right, mm. which was, I want the pop singer. Mm. One of my other kind of favorite stories about his experimentation with musique concrete mm. and I'm very bad with French pronunciation, so that
1: was impressive though.
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much. But he did a thing called ray cathode, was was how it was released. But basically he took a recording of an electronic time signal uh, that was developed by the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Concrete music is basically using non-musical recorded sounds and turning them into music. That's a fair Mm. description, probably, right? Mm. He took this time signal and he added a melody and a Latin rhythm using studio musicians to create a piece that was called Time Beat, and it was released as a single under the name Ray Cathode. There are even some photos out there of George Martin posing with a big computer (laughs) Mm. called Ray Cathode. Um, Mm. Is it good? I don't know this. It's basic. I mean, it actually got some play on BBC light programming, kind of just like background music. It didn't hit the singles chart, mm. but, but it's, you know, it's a cute little thing. I don't think you would listen to it to, uh, you know, go, oh, I'm listening to great music. It's kind of a backgroundy thing. Mm. But um, there was another quote from George Martin in Kenneth Womack's book about this idea, which is kind of funny. Uh, George Martin says, electronic or concrete music is not new in itself, but it is on pop discs. Uh, time beat is concrete music reinforced by musicians. So we're calling it reinforced concrete music. Uh bump yeah,
1: listener, did you did you did you guess it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and like I say, it didn't it didn't hit the singles chart, but what the experimenting that he was doing, he even actually did some experimenting with backwards music mm. that would come in handy later. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but but did whatever he wanted. Speaking
1: of this, so we've been avoiding jumping into the future because uh, in the Beatles 60 project, both your blog and uh, Facebook and Twitter pages and Twitter account, whatever, and uh, our uh, Facebook group collectively, we're all sort of staying on the day 60 years ago every day and it's a a new anniversary every day and we go into the past of the past, but we don't jump into the future, the future past. But, well, especially in the podcast and especially this topic, it might be interesting to jump ahead a little bit because it's almost ironic and just like amazing because he didn't want the Beatles, but then they turned out to be exactly the thing that he was looking for.
0: Right? Yeah, that's right. I guess to get into all of the details of how that happened is probably kind of you know, later, later. For, for later. But but yeah, but that is accurate. He was not impressed by them. It basically was a task that was given to him to record the Beatles. And just, just really briefly, without getting into all the detail, it was because the publishing company of EMI, Ardmore and Beechwood, wanted the rights to a couple of the songs that John and Paul had written. And the way to do that was to sign them. But yeah, so he's like, okay, I guess I'll have to record the Beatles. No big deal. I record a lot of stuff, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Uh, but then, yeah, it turned into exactly what he had been looking for all that time.
1: I mean, you know, Cliff Richard plus, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when the Beatles took off, that was when Cliff kind of started fading away a little bit. And not completely. He was still around for a while, but but
1: yeah. Right. And Helen Shapiro. Yeah. Right. And um who was his counterpart at uh, at the Columbia label again that was Nori Paramore yeah Nori so I wonder how he like when they're in the EMI lunchroom he's like hi Nori (laughs) like once once he got you know uh please please me
0: onto the charts you know right it's like hey have you have you talked to Cliff lately how's he feeling (laughs) (laughs) it is it is a very kind of ironic thing right that what do they say it's like you you never know when the thing that you want is going to just suddenly come to you
1: it's just it is amazing almost by accident you No? Yeah, um, that was absolutely not destiny. <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> well, and, and you could go back and how much of the Beatles story is just like, wow, you know, this person did this, this person did this. You know, this is what we were talking about last week. It's like it
1: just works out. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, the, in, in the end, the story is the story. You know, yes. If, yes. if 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 something else had happened, if there was a different person involved in doing something, the story would have changed, to whatever degree that it changed, but it would still be the story.
1: Yeah, we're all, all of us are backward-looking prophets.
0: Yeah. The Historiker is rückwärts gekehrter prophet.
1: And, and I think we said in a private conversation recently how you could say that it's true about any of us that we became who we are because of all these weird things that happened, you know? Yeah. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't, who knows what destiny is. I don't think, I don't think about destiny, but uh, yeah, the results are, um, I, I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> My brain hurts. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Maybe a listener can-, can Give some ideas. Yeah. Listeners, you can go to our anchor page. So it's anchor.fm slash Beatles six zero. There's a button where you can send us audio and we can include you in future podcasts. So Mm. if you have something you want to say about this, this like quirkiness of history and destiny and all that um, accidents and coincidences and, and things like that. But Um, I wanted to just, I wanted to jump ahead because it's so interesting because everything we talked about that is happening to him now 60 years ago is completely setting him up for what's going to happen a year from now, you know? Yeah. Or sooner. When does it happen?
0: Uh, The signing happens in May. Then the uh, first single is October. Um, There's a few few things that we're going to be talking a whole lot about that happen in between there. But, yeah, basically between May and October 1962 is when it all starts. There's a lineup change coming.
1: (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) (sighs) (sighs) Well, that's all for this week. Please um, check the show notes for links to Andy's blog, blog. BarmyBeetleBlog.com and Barmy Old Kodger on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, And the Facebook group that I maintain with Grant Heaton called It Was 60 Years Ago Today. That's a six zero. We don't spell out the word 60 in that case. Mm -hmm. And we'll also include a link in the sources mentioned in this episode. We'll include those in the show notes. So have a look at our show notes. And uh, finally, if you Google us, Remember to put Beatles 60 with no space, uh, in quotation marks. Beatles 60, not Beatles space 60, right? Because if you put Beatles space 60, you get everything about the Beatles in the 1960s, yep. which is everything in the world.
0: Yeah. Uh, have a nice holiday, Andy. Yeah, take care. Um, happy Thanksgiving to everyone who has Thanksgiving coming up. I will be uh, having a Thanksgiving in, in Virginia.
1: Oh, yeah. The Commonwealth of Virginia.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: In uh, Jamestown or... Uh...
0: No, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'll be in Charlottesville, but yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, Charlottesville. <laughs> yeah. Not with tiki torches or anything. No, right? no, no. Not at all. <laughs> uh-huh. What are you thankful for?
0: Uh... I'm, I'm actually, you know, this is probably going to sound very, very orchestrated to say something like this, but you know. I am thankful that I've been able to do this for four and a half years and and to keep it up and to actually have it become bigger by doing things like adding a podcast to the whole deal and and just studying the Beatles. It's a great thing to be able to do.
1: I'm going to say, you know, um, sort of ditto to all that. And I want the listener to know, you know, we sort of script a little bit in advance, but that was totally just spontaneous and from the heart from Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, goodbye.